Well, um, at, at our house, we have five children, most of whom are grown and have made their way out of our household. But uh, the last four of our kids are more liberal arts-oriented. We had one math guy in the family. He was the first one. And me, having a background as an engineer, uh, it falls on me to be the math tutor at the house. And so uh, math with liberal arts people is always interesting. Uh, It looks like this. Okay? This is uh, a lot of what math, find X. Here it is, you know, that kind of thing. Or for word problems, uh, if you have four pencils and I have seven apples, how many pancakes will fit on the roof? Purple because aliens don't wear hats, okay? That's a lot of the kind of looks that I get when we do this kind of stuff. Here's one more for you. Dear math, I'm not a therapist, solve your own problems. (laughs) And... uh, Uh, This morning, I know many of you are liberal arts folks. Most of you probably are liberal arts folks. And to your peril, we are going to do math this morning. Um, But the only math that you need to know uh, to grasp what I hope hope we're going to discover from Acts 17 this morning is this. You have to know the difference between these two symbols. Greater than, okay, as opposed to greater than or equal to. Okay, you remember that? These are, these are not texting symbols. These are math symbols. And the meaning that you need to understand as I take you back to middle school, greater than and is, is different than, greater than or equal to. So in light of that and the blank stares I'm getting from your faces, let's pray and we'll open up the Bible and see how we can redeem all this. Father, you are, you are a good and a great God. And that makes it all the more amazing that when we bow our heads and turn our thoughts towards you, you welcome us. When we come through Christ, you welcome us. You, you delight for moments like this when we slow down and pray and invite you to be our great God, to to be Lord, and to lead and guide us. And that's what we ask right now. By your word and your spirit, lead and guide us now. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. We are midway through Acts 17 in our study of the book of Acts. If you'd like to open your Bibles there. um, Paul is traveling um, on this second missionary journey He's consistently being chased by opposition leaders, mostly Jews who have have opposed what he's teaching about Jesus. And he's been escorted at the point we are to the city of Athens. Um, in, uh, In Acts chapter 17 verse 15 it says those who conducted Paul, and this is this is part of an escape plan for Paul from persecution. Those who conducted Paul brought him as far as Athens, and after receiving a command for Silas and Timothy, his two missionary buddies, uh, to come for him as soon as possible, uh, they then departed. Now, our story today is going to take place in the city of Athens, and though Rome 
was the capital of the Roman Empire, there's a sense in which uh, historians tell us that Athens was still the intellectual and cultural center of Greek culture. It's been likened to uh, think about Oxford or Harvard or Yale or, or something like that. Um, and while Paul was waiting for them in Athens, in that great city of Athens, that great intellectual and cultural center, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. Athens was a city full of idols, we're told. Now, it's difficult to estimate the population of Athens evidently back in the day. Some, I've, I've heard estimates as little as 10,000 people lived in the city of Athens. And I've heard estimates that there were as many as 30,000 idols in that city. Uh, one historian said that you, it was easier to find a god than a man in Athens uh, back in the day. And when Paul sees this, he's provoked. And different, uh, that, that language there is rendered differently in, when it comes into English different ways. Greatly troubled, disturbed, very upset, even angered. And it seems to me to have a, both a vertical and a horizontal component. Vertically, Paul is upset, even angered, that rather than worship the one true God, that the worship that's due the one true God, it's being lavished on all these little statues and idols and altars that Athens is littered with. The glory due to God is being given to things made by the hands of men. That's upsetting to him. But horizontally, as we'll see, Paul is moved, stirred, it seems, with compassion, greed for those who've fallen prey to idolatry, who put their hopes and look for satisfaction to lesser man-made idols. Now, why would that be so troubling to Paul? It's because of what, what idols do. And typically, they do three things. They enslave they fail, and they rob. Okay. They enslave us to them with relentless demands, even though they fail to deliver on the promises that they make, and then they rob God of the glory He deserves, of the satisfaction and joy and hope that should be attributed to Him and experienced by those who worship Him. So I want you to imagine with me, I'm going to be hypothetical here this morning, imagine with me that you have an idol in your house. That you are an idol worshiper. And let's, let's say it's a big idol. 60 inches measured diagonally. Okay? Just hypothetically. And let's say that it's a fancy idol and that it tends to glow blue. Again, being hypothetical here, no worries. It comes... Uh, if you've ever been in a really a liturgical or orthodox worship service, it, this idol of yours, it comes with a sensor. You know, a thing that you, you shake and it distributes incense. And in you, and, and your fancy idol, when you shake the, the, the sensor at the idol, it changes images. Hundreds of different channels. Oops, I mean images that you can see on your idol. Okay? In this imaginary situation in your home. And the idol's promising you, sit before me and I will replenish you. 
I will satisfy your soul. Bring you joy. I will help your family bond. Okay? This is the language of the idol, this imaginary idol, 60-inch diagonal in your home. And so you shake the sensor and you flip through the images and you get through all 200, 300 images that are available to you. And what do you say? There's nothing on, right? Isn't that what you say? Do you ever do that? You go through all the channels. I mean, when I grew up, we had four channels. Now you have hundreds of channels, and you get done and you say, there's, there's nothing on. How can, how can there be 200 channels and nothing on that's worthy of my time? The idol promises to replenish, to satisfy, to give joy, to bond your family, but it's not built for that, okay? I fear that it's built for more sinister purposes. Um, and yet we sit night after night, don't we? And we hope. And we, we look to this imaginary idol that I'm speaking about that you all seem to have a vague knowledge of, and we hope that it will bring us joy, and we hope that it will replenish our souls, and we hope that it will help our families bond. And rarely, rarely does it deliver on the promises that it makes. Because, again, it's not built for that. And any resemblance to anything that's actually happening in your home is entirely providential. Okay? What do you see when you drive through our city? When you drive through the triangle... What do you see? Um, what are our idols? Can you see them? Tim Keller suggests that if you find a city's tallest buildings, you have a clue as to what their idols are. You know what the three tallest buildings in Raleigh are? They are um, the PNC building, uh, PNC Financial Services, formerly RBC Plaza of RBC Bank. That's the tallest building. Second one is 2 Hanover Square, commonly known as the BB&T, as in BB&T Bank building, right? And the third tallest building is the Wells Fargo Capital Center. Isn't it interesting? Those three tallest buildings are all finance-related in our city. If we moved away from height to some other assessment of scope and size in our culture, we would probably have to move to sporting arenas, wouldn't we? Or maybe shopping malls. Um, and if Keller is right, if these are idolatrous pointers, what would the idols in our city be? Financial wealth and security? Entertainment? Comfort? Veneer? As in appearance? And if we leave economics of scale, of a big scale, on the broader community, and we look at the lives of individuals, of our coworkers, of people like us, of what we look to for satisfaction at things which we simply cannot seem to do without, what do you see? Do you see satellite dishes? Do you see smartphones? Do you see luxury cars and designer clothes? 
What do you see? What are the idols in our city? And I think as we think about them, you know, if you press all these different things down, all these seem to be houses designed for the worship of our unholy trinity of me, myself, and mine. What do you see as you drive through our city, through the triangle, where you work, where you go to school? What do you see? How does, how does it affect you? Because Paul was provoked in his spirit. When you go out for a walk in your neighborhood at night, and you walk by every house late in the evening, and you look in every house, and there's that blue glow in every living room, every living room. Does that, does that sadden you at all? To wonder what is going on in the relationships in that home. This is the inability of the next generation, or for a lot of you, your generation, to disconnect from the trivia of social media worry you? Do shopping malls and sporting arenas make you a little bit uneasy somewhere in your soul, where, where thousands upon thousands of dollars are offered up in the name of fashion? The average shopping mall has 37 stores dedicated to fashion. And sporting arenas where hundreds, tens of thousands, sometimes hundreds, gather to watch people play. What is going on? I wonder, does the endless parade of new car dealerships when you drive down Capitol Boulevard make you wonder what on earth is going on in our souls? With an average new car loan of over $27,000 and a monthly payment just shy of $500 on average, on average, what do you see? And here's the thing, for us who live in our culture, our idols have gone dangerously covert. They're hard for us to see. Paul walks into Athens with fresh eyes. And he sees, and it affects him deeply. He's deeply troubled, and it drives him to go to the people. In verse 17, Paul went and he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. So his response to the idols is to try to rescue people from them. His spirit is so provoked, so troubled by what he saw, the people hoping in and worshiping in, that he had to talk to them. He had to engage them. He talked to Jews. He talked to devout Gentiles. He went to the marketplace with whoever happened to be there. You get the sense that anybody that would listen to Paul in Athens, he would talk to them. He would talk to them about Jesus. He couldn't bear to see lives wasted with gods that enslave and don't deliver. He couldn't bear to see the living God's glory wasted on wood and stone. But you also get a sense that Paul's message is for everyone. Jews, Gentiles, whoever he finds in the marketplace, it's, it's for everyone. 
For people who have a largely Judeo-Christian worldview and for those who have a radically different one, Paul believes his gospel is for everyone. And so in verse 18, some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him and some said, what does this babbler wish to say? And others said, he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection, of course, Paul is preaching Jesus and the resurrection. But this gospel, this message of good news about Jesus is for everyone, Paul understands, even philosophers. You know the two laws of philosophy? Here they are. First law of philosophy. For every philosopher, there exists an equal and opposite philosopher. Law two. They're both wrong. These were evidently two prominent schools of philosophy in, in Paul's day. Um, Pastor J.D. Greer gives a helpful uh, rough summary. He says the Epicureans were basically hedonists. They believed that the gods were composed of atoms so fine they dwelt in the space between the worlds, and they don't care about this world, so live it up. He says the Stoics were pantheists who believed God was in everything, similar to today's Hindus. They were all about self-control. Their ideal was imperturbability, unable to be perturbed. Pain doesn't bother you. Pleasure doesn't seduce you. He says, think Spock. Okay. Um, and as you can tell, these, these two schools of philosophy do not esteem the philosophy that Paul is advancing. They call him a babbler. It's the way it comes across in English. The literal rendering is that he was a seed picker. Uh, he's just picking at seeds of ideas, you know, scrapping them together. Think pigeon. Uh, that's, that seems to be what lies behind their ridicule and mockery of Paul. But some others say, it sounds to us like he's advocating foreign gods. And uh, you know why they said that? See, because this, in all likelihood, this is an unreached people group. Okay, well, that's what we call them today, a UPG. They'd never heard the story of Jesus before. Paul is taking it places where it's never gone. It's a new idea to them. And, and Paul understands God, God to be so great, so greater than, no equal to, that he is willing to take this gospel to people who've never heard, to walk the halls of the philosopher, and whomever will listen with the belief, he'll tell them with the belief that the message of Jesus is superior, it's greater than what they believe. See, his God is greater than, not greater than or equal to. There's no equal to in Paul's mind. He's greater than. And so he'll walk right in with the philosophers and say, I have, a, I have a better way. And so in verse 19, they, they took him, these philosophers he's debating with, and brought him to the Areopagus, um, saying, a place where a lot of debates happened, evidently, saying, may we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting? Okay. Now I'm thinking that this is what you call an open door. 
Okay? That's, I think this qualifies. He says, you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. Now, all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there <clears throat> would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. Doctoral students. Okay. Paul is, um, Paul is brought to this place of philosophical debate, and they treasure new ideas. Paul's idea is new. They've never heard the story about Jesus. And it's an open door. They want to know. They said, tell us what this means. <clears throat> and I, it seems to me that open doors come to Paul for two reasons. <clears throat> Excuse me. <clears throat> One, Paul speaks to people about Jesus. Okay? People cannot say, tell me more if you're saying nothing. He's talking about Jesus to anyone who will listen. And as we've seen, he prays for these opportunities. Paul is praying and having others pray for open doors for him. I've shown you this scripture before. Colossians 4, verse 3 and 4. At the same time, Paul writes, pray also for us. Pray that God may open to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ on account of which I'm in prison, that I may make it clear, which is how I ought to speak. Pray for us also that God may open to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ. Okay. Here's, here's what I want you to do. Join me. Let's do two things. Memorize verse 3. Colossians 4, verse 3. It says, Paul says, Pray also for us that God may open to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ. Okay? Memorize that much of verse 3. I'll, you don't even have to remember all of verse 3, just that much. Memorize that with me, and then let's pray it every day. Let's pray that God would open for us a door for the word, that we might speak the mystery of Christ. Pray it for you and pray it for our church. Pray that God would open up doors for the word for people in your small group. Let's pray it and let's see what God does. Okay? So let's memorize the guts of verse 3. Okay? Pray also for us that God may open to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ. Let's memorize that, and then let's pray it every day. You'll probably have to put a reminder on your refrigerator or your dashboard or on your cubicle at work or bouncing around on your computer screen or something. Um, somehow. But let's pray because open, doors open for Paul because he spoke of Jesus and he prayed. And then in verse 22, Paul answers... He stands in the midst of the Areopagus and he said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. No kidding. <laughs> 30,000 idols in a city of 10,000 people. You think? Okay. Extraordinarily religious. Paul is using this as a bridge into what he wants to say. He says, For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, 
to the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. So there's this one altar in the city that Paul happens to see as he's walking by, and it's an altar set up to the unknown God. And you get the sense that this altar is kind of a a catch-all. It's kind of a spiritual insurance policy. If in erecting their 30,000 altars, they happen to overlook one God so so that that God wouldn't be ticked off at them, they erected this God, this altar, for the unknown God, the overlooked God. It's a way of appeasement. It's a way of covering their backside spiritually. It's not that Paul sees this as particularly commendable. He sees it as an opportunity. And he says, hey, the God you worship in ignorance, I would like to introduce him to you. He would like them to know that the God they missed, the one they need to know, the God that is is greater than, not greater than or equal to, but greater than, that this unknown God, he can be known. He wants to be known, Paul says. So he says to them, the God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. So Paul has a group of people who are not, this group of people, these are not Jewish people who have a background in the Old Testament. Uh, They are marketplace people in Athens, and they have a pluralistic, polytheistic worldview. They worship lots of gods. So where does he start with them? He doesn't start with the four spiritual laws. He starts with God as creator. There is a God. And He is creator of everything. He's not made by us. We are made by Him. He has no need of us, but our need for Him is great because He's the one who gives us lives. He gives us everything. Our very lives are gifts from this creator God's good hand. D.A. Carson explains why what Paul's establishing when he starts with God as creator. He says that, Creation establishes that God is other than the created order. And as such, pantheism is ruled out. It also establishes human accountability. We owe our creator everything. And to defy him and set up ourselves as the center of the universe is the heart of all sin. It's to cherish, to cherish and worship created things instead of the creator is the essence of idolatry. It's false worship. So Paul is establishing that the God that they do not know, the God that they wish they knew, the God that they need to know is the creator God, the Lord of heaven and earth. He is greater than, not greater than or equal to. He is over all things. He goes on and says, this God, this creator God made from one man, Every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God in the hope that they might feel their way toward Him and find Him. Yet He's actually not far from each one of us. So from the one man, Adam, 
Paul says that this previously unknown creator God, this is the God who made every nation. This is not some local God, just a God of Athens, but he made every nation and he determined when and where people shall live. They were first century Athenians by God's design. We are 21st century Americans by this sovereign God's design. Okay? He is truly, in Paul's presentation, greater than, not greater than or equal to. Okay? He's superior to all the other gods that they've worshipped. And he has arranged our lives such that we might have a chance to know him, that we might somehow find him. The unknown God wants to be known. He's near, Paul says. He's findable. He has built the world for us to find and know our creator. The world's built to accomplish that. We're put in the world in a place and time so that we could experience that. We could know our creator. He goes on and says, For in him we live and move and have our being. As even some of your own poets have said, and he's going to quote some of their Greek poets, for we are indeed his offspring. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. Okay. So Paul's establishing again, God is greater than, not greater than or equal to. He's not just another one of their pantheon of gods. He's our maker. He gives us our lives and our being. So he must be alive and have being. It's wrong to think of God as someone who is served by our hands, who's fashioned by man. And so Paul, it's interesting, you notice there's almost no Old Testament quotes here, right? When he's in the synagogue earlier in Acts, he's quoting the Old Testament all the time because they have a worldview that recognizes that as God's truth. These people don't know any of that. So he's starting with creation and even using their poets, their philosophers, as a bridge to teach truth about God. D.A. Carson again says, The evangelist must find bridges into other, other people's frame of reference or no communication is possible. The evangelist will remain ghettoized. And so Paul steps into their world, uses their language to communicate the truth of the scriptures about God. And he paints a picture of a God who is the creator of all. He's totally self-sufficient. He's the giver of life and all things. He determines the times and places where men live. He forms the boundaries of nations. He desires men to seek him. He wants to be known and found, and he's near to us. He's findable. But he also paints a picture of who God is not. He's not, he does not dwell in man-made temples. He needs nothing from us. He's not served by men. He's not made of silver or gold or stone. He's not like your idols. He is greater than, not greater than or equal to. He's not just another God. Okay. He's the one true Lord of all creation of heaven and earth. He's not one of their 30,000 idols. 
And so finally, Paul has laid all this groundwork. And you can read Paul's sermon in Athens in about two minutes. I don't think it only lasted two minutes. I think what you have here is a summary of what Paul taught in Athens. I doubt that it was only a two-minute sermon. I know you all wish for two-minute sermons. I don't think those exist. I don't think they existed in Paul's day either. But after he's laid all this groundwork, now he has them in a place where he's ready to introduce them to Jesus. Okay? Now they have a framework to make sense out of Jesus. They understand that there's a creator God and that they have wrongly worshipped him. Okay? He's ready to tell them about Jesus. And it's interesting... Um, if you talk with any of our missionaries about how they talk with people um, about Christ, if they're in India or they're in China or they're um, working with peoples from another, another worldview, Hindu or Buddhist, especially those kind of religions where they're not monotheistic, they're pluralistic, polytheistic kind of situations, um, they rarely, if ever, sit down and get to start with for instance, the four spiritual laws, which is the way I was trained. First, first time I was ever trained to tell people about Jesus, I used that law. I used that little booklet. It starts with the fact that God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. You've sinned against him, and there are dire consequences to that, so God has sent his son to rescue you from that. They don't start with that. Because if you say God in India, they're going to say, which God? Because there's millions of them. Which God loves me and has a wonderful plan for my life? They have a totally different worldview. They use, our, our missionaries, many of them are using something called C to C, creation to Christ. And they start with creation. And they explain that there's a creator God. Okay. First, before they explain why Christ came. Because they don't have a worldview to make sense of it. And you need to know that this is increasingly our world. It's coming to us. A long time ago when I was in college, okay, let's just say decades ago when I was in college, my senior year I moved into a freshman dorm. So I was a senior living with all freshmen, and my purpose in being in that dorm was I was planted there to try to have conversations about Jesus with the people in my dorm, okay? That was part of the strategy. I was put there, and uh, so we start talking with uh, these 17-year-olds, now, again, okay, this is, this is almost 40 years ago, in the Midwest, which is like the suspenders of the Bible Belt, okay, in the Midwest, all right? 40 years ago, we'd start talking to people about God, and we realized we couldn't start with law one. We needed law zero. There's a God who exists, and he's the creator of everything. We had to start there. We had to talk about, did God exist? And what, what, what kind of God was it? Forty years ago, in the suspender place, in the Midwest. Now, uh, again, in the Midwest, just recently, I read a story about a guy. He's out walking. Uh, he's a student at one of the seminaries in, the, in Chicago. He's out walking with his uh, girlfriend, and she is wearing a necklace with a cross on it in Chicago, suspender land still, okay? Um, 
Someone stopped her on the sidewalk and said, why are you wearing a plus sign on your necklace? We are increasingly living in a world where we have more preparatory work for people to make sense out of Jesus. Um, Where we're going to have to talk about the fact that there is a creator who who in love and mercy created a world for us to enjoy that, that we might know him. Paul then, as he's ready, he's he's done all this groundwork, now he's ready to start talking about Jesus. He says, the times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. Because he has fixed the day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed, and of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Right? He's talking about Jesus and the resurrection again. Remember that's where Paul started in the marketplace? And now he's got to go to the Areopagus, and he's back there. All the preliminary talk needed to lead here for Paul. These times of ignorance, um, it seems that God has graciously delayed judgment. Um, But now that Christ has come as Savior, the next thing on God's great time frame is for Christ to come again as judge which is what Paul is talking about here. He is talking about Christ coming again to judge the world. Paul would say in the book of Romans, chapter 2, he's going to say, on that day when, according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. And in the book of Revelation, we see an image of that John says, I I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True. This is the Christ. And in righteousness, he judges and makes war. And so Paul now has moved from his talk about God being the greater God, not greater than or equal to, the greater God, the greatest God, the great God, but he's going to bring judgment on them for their false worship. Okay? For a life spent dishonoring him. And he builds a bridge to Christ. He's not content to just build a bridge. The bridge goes somewhere. It leads to Christ. All our spiritual conversation needs to move at varying paces towards Christ. When we talk to our friends, the real question is who do you think Jesus is? What do you think of Jesus? And he has an interesting angle when when he talks about Jesus here. He says, you must repent because Jesus is coming to judge the world. Paul's back to Jesus where he started. All his prior conversations were to help them understand who Jesus was and why he came. We are praying for an open door to speak of Jesus, of his death and resurrection. And this evidently is also the point of greatest resistance from from the Greeks that he was speaking to. Because in verse 32, when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked. Others said, we'll hear you again about this. 
So Paul went out from their midst. But some men joined him and believed, among whom were also Dionysius the Areopagite and a woman named Damaris and others with them. So the response to Paul is mixed, right? And we see this all through. There's, there's often a mixed response. When he mentioned the resurrection, some mocked. Okay. Resurrection for a lot of Greeks was not a good thing. If they were dualists, they believed that the body was a bad thing. So if you're going to resurrect a bad thing, this was not a good thing. And they really didn't have a category for this. Okay. They mocked him. This was, this was again... Um, Seed-picking theology in their mind. And if, if you got drugged here this morning by a friend and you're a mocker, okay, you think their faith is really kind of silly, let me just encourage you that before you mock, make sure you understand. Okay, make sure you truly understand the big picture of who Jesus claimed to be and why he came how that fits in a theology that involves the creation of the world. Um, make sure you understand before you mock. If you understand and you want to mock, then that's up to you. But make sure that you are mocking what you understand and that you understand it fully before you do that. Second group of people, they were curious. They wanted to hear more. And, uh, and this may well be the case. They wanted to hear more of Paul. They need more information. Again, he's coming from a totally different worldview, really. And if that's you this morning, know that our church exists in the world to serve people like you. And you have, you're a priority for us, and we want to help you. We want to explain, as often as you need it explained, the message of the Christian faith and the hope of the good news of Jesus Christ. We're glad to do that. You're a priority to us. But having said that, I don't know if that's what they were doing or if they were just procrastinating. And I really want you to beware of procrastinating on something this important. Um, I was in charge of dinner this week, so of course we had Chinese food, takeout. Um, and I opened my fortune cookie, and this is, this is what my fortune cookie said. It said, only put off until tomorrow what you are willing to die having left undone. That was a little sobering for a fortune cookie. <laughs> you know, that's a little heavy. Um, but you know what? It's worth thinking about when we talk about uh, matters as important as life with God or life without God, the life God has for you, knowing God. You don't want to procrastinate on that one. And then there's this third group, they believed, okay? They believed what Paul had said. They believed that creation points to a creator. They believed that their own sin in worshiping idols and lesser things and hoping and looking for satisfaction in something less than this great creator God speaks of judgment. And that in order to know the God that wants to be known, it requires a savior, a rescuer, one who died for them and actually rose from the dead. And if you're here this morning and you're at that point, then you need to know that before you leave this room, you can enter into a relationship of faith and trust with Jesus. 
just like Dionysius and Damaris did when they heard Paul preach on that day. Now, a number of us are already in that boat. We're believers. We've believed. And so, let, let me give you a takeaway for you, okay? There is a God. We worship a God who is greater than, not greater than or equal to, okay? And if you know that God, you are right to be bold. You are right to step into any conversation at work. You are right to walk the halls of the great philosophers of our day and say that there is a God who is greater. And if you don't know Him, I would like to help you know Him. There's no shame in that. There's no fear in that. There's no, there's no worry in that. You are right. If what Paul says about our God, the portrait of God he paints here is stunning. If he's right, then you are right to be bold in telling your friends and your family and your coworkers and the philosophers at school about this God, about Jesus, and about the resurrection. The Apostle Paul asked for prayer in Ephesians 6. He says, when you pray for all the saints, pray for me, that words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel. And again, he says, that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. May it be so for us as well. Would you bow with me in prayer, please? Father, to, to think rightly about you it's more than we can sort out on our own. We, we need your help. We need the Spirit of God at work in us. And we welcome that. Help us to see how much greater than you are. To see your greater than-ness. That there are none, none like you. No better pursuit of our life than to know you. And to boldly make you known. And Lord, I do want to pray for anyone who's here this morning. Who is still on the longing side of knowing you. They've never entered into a relationship of faith with you. In your mercy now, grant them faith to believe. That though they have sinned, Christ's death on the cross is enough to wipe those sins away. And for him to become the bridge, the way, back to a relationship with you. To know they can actually know the God who is greater than. And Lord, help us to be unashamed, to be bold, to let people know that you want to be known and you've made a way for that in Jesus in his death and resurrection. Uh, mark us with that as a church, Father. We pray this all in Christ's great and matchless name. Amen. Our faith together. So.